Hello, my name's Mark Vernon, and I'm here with Rupert Sheldrake. Hello, Rupert. Hello, Mark. For one of our Science Set Free conversations. And Rupert, I wondered if today we might talk about um, the phenomenon of a growing secular Buddhism. So this is um, the idea that Buddhist practices are becoming very popular, I think, um, in the West. And moreover, there's quite an effort to see whether a kind of complete, well, maybe even Western Buddhism can be articulated, or certainly a Buddhism that sits easily within secular assumptions. A key figure here um, that I've read, and I know you've been reading, um, is Stephen Batchelor, who's written a number of books exploring this. Um, I remember reading Confessions of an Atheist Buddhist, and he's written subsequently too, I think, hasn't he, about um, Buddhism and trying to quest for the historical Buddha in particular, I think, and find, trying to find out what is of the essence in Buddhism and what is accretions that don't fit so well in the modern world. Um, is, I mean, is this a, re- a phenomenon you recognise too? Well, yes. I, I went to a talk recently by Stephen Batchelor um, in which he was launching his new book on secular Buddhism. Um, and he he was arguing that if you strip away the religious side of Buddhism, which is certainly there, I mean, in Tibet, if you go to a Tibetan Buddhist temple, it's full of gods and deities and protector divinities and rituals and practices. And if you go to a Buddhist temple in Sri Lanka, it's surrounded by shrines to the Hindu gods and goddesses, and people are doing pujas and asking for things and uh, I mean it has all the normal functions of religion including festivals and popular um, celebrations and so forth Um, plus the fact that in Buddhist countries there are these monasteries that all follow particular rules and they're certainly not secular I mean this is it's part of a religion so his aim is to remove all that which he sees as historical accretions And he explained that if you actually look at the first Buddhist texts, Buddha is putting forward a kind of philosophy of life, a way of living, which reminded me actually of your own excellent book on early ancient philosophy, which where you show, better than anyone else has shown in my experience, how the great Greek philosophers were actually proposing ways of life, not just arguments about ideas in seminar rooms, as it were. And he was trying to portray the Buddha as being a bit like um, the ancient Greek philosophers, as a kind of secular way of life uh, philosopher. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the latest dating of the Buddha's life actually puts him more or less contemporary with Socrates, who, of course, is the seminal figure in ancient Greek philosophy, and certainly felt that philosophy in terms of knowing things as they are, um, truthfully, doesn't get anywhere unless you're working on yourself. You, as it were, have to be a receptive uh, soul to mm. see um, things immaterially as well as you know the material world around one. Um, I guess in the Buddha, certainly the sort of more secular Buddhism, there's more of a therapeutic feel directly, um, that it's about dealing with this tangible issue of suffering and it's often said that the Buddha wasn't much concerned with metaphysics, um, which, of course, clearly the ancient philosophers were, even the Epicureans, um, the sort of least, uh, the most materialist kind of 
group amongst the ancient philosophers, they still wanted to advocate a materialist metaphysics. Mm. Um, whereas he's sort of saying, I think that the Buddha, um, it's kind of there in the background, but it, you can, you can allow that to float free, as it were, yes. of any kind of assumptions. Exactly. I mean, Buddhists to this day are rather like that. I've tried to engage Tibetan monks in, um, in you know, studies about science and philosophy of science, and most of them aren't in, at all interested. I've done the same with Sri Lankan monks, too. Um, they basically say, you know, don't waste your time with these speculations, just meditate and concentrate on you know, the nature of consciousness as you can directly explore it. So what I've always wondered about that is, do you think that they think that speculative metaphysics is just bound to be self-deluded or bound to um, be a sort of bit of a waste of time because the, the <coughs> rational speculation can only take you so far? Um, but the direct experience nonetheless opens up worlds that could be called metaphysical. Or do you think it's because they don't think there's metaphysical worlds at all? I don't know. I think it's just that they see it as a distraction and a, a waste of time. I mean, the Dalai Lama is an exception because he has, after all, for years now been having these meetings with scientists discussing, you know, consciousness studies, um, consciousness science and so forth, where obviously um, Buddhist traditions could play a major part because they've been exploring consciousness for millennia. Um, I myself suspect that both the secular way of life type philosophy argument and the aversion to metaphysics are because they could actually take it for granted. And when Buddha uh, was doing his teaching in India, there were temples everywhere. There were, there were, I suppose there were temples. There aren't any from that age at present, but I, I imagine there must have been shrines and devotions of all kinds. So the society was permeated by a kind of religious practice and also permeated by metaphysical speculation I mean the Upanishads and all those, those marvellous Hindu philosophy was going on at the time so it wasn't as if he felt he had to offer a complete package because he could presuppose in the background of his society philosophers, metaphysical speculation and popular religious practice for people to make offerings and to pray and to have wedding ceremonies and funeral ceremonies and all the things that religions provide, um, where all the things that are necessary for human life. And I suppose that the same was true of ancient Greece, that um, these philosophers could you know, put forward their way of life thing, but they took for granted that the Panathea was going, Panathenia was going on these festivals of Athena, huge popular festivals, temples all over Athens and elsewhere in the ancient world. Uh, all these religious devotions and practices and offerings to ancestors, oracles at Delphi, you know, the Eleusinian mysteries, cave initiations and, and so on, all these things were going on in the background. They didn't need to challenged them, they, they sort of accepted them and they offered something that worked against that background. Yeah, I mean, I think that certainly a figure like Socrates in Plato's dialogues, he's depicted every so often as making a libation or um, indeed, you know, very commonly in, in the dialogues uh, hearing his own divine voice, his demon, and uh, he's portrayed as feeling he had a vocation directly connected to Apollo and the Delphic Oracle. Um, so I think that's right and they, they saw their task as 
in a way penetrating more deeply into the meaning of this kind of panoply of religious practice, um, but without rejecting it. Yes. Well, that's what I imagine, you see. And so when I heard Stephen Batchelor portraying him as a kind of secular philosopher, just portraying a lifestyle, I, it seemed to me that there he and the Greeks could take for granted a whole religious background to life, which in a modern secular Western society you can't. Um, it's not as if most people that are listening to Stephen Batchelor or doing Buddhist practices have a rich life of festivals and everyday religious practice and regular visits to holy places and shrines. A few may do, but the chances are most of them have nothing. And so I think I thought it was rather a, a misrepresentation of the spirit of the Buddha because he could presuppose a background that no longer applies. And therefore the secular Buddhism uh, would have to thrive in, in a background where all the normal functions that religions provide, you know, consolations in time of stress, you know, prayer for things you really need, ceremonies for life passages, you know, births, marriages, deaths, you know, christenings and all that kind of thing, um, the regular festivals, uh, the pilgrimages, um, all the many things that religions do for us and have offered to people over the centuries and millennia, those aren't there. And I think that many people need these, and I don't think secular Buddhism can possibly supply them, because in the way he portrayed it, it's very much an individualist lifestyle choice. You go and may go on a retreat at a Buddhist centre now and then, but basically the rest of it is doing it in the privacy of your meditation space in your study or in your bedroom or wherever you do it at home. Yeah, I think that um, when I've read his books and heard him talk, that it reminds me a lot of the quest for the historical Jesus, um, this business of trying to separate out what was particular to the Buddha, you know, parallels how biblical scholars have tried to se separate out what was particular to Jesus and particularly taking... But in Jesus's case, the kind of moral issues and teasing that apart from other aspects, which are certainly in the Gospels, but which are less palatable um, in a secular age. It felt like uh, Stephen is trying to do that um, for the Buddha. So, for example, the Buddha's insight that suffering is the main issue we must try to recognize. He thinks that that is something that the Buddha distinctively took on board. But... The Buddha's um, belief in reincarnation, which is, you know, there in um, all the uh, ancient texts, um, is a kind of optional extra because he picked that up just from the general background. Um, and reincarnation, for well, many even many Buddhist practitioners, is a more tricky kind of idea. Um, so if it's not of the essence, it can sort of be dropped. Hmm. Um, but I, it, the, the the parallel with the historical Jesus also led me to. In a way, question the project because um, the trouble with the quest for the historical Jesus is that those engaged with it end up making a Jesus who's actually a bit like them um, mm. because it's very hard, I think, to separate out what you like and don't like from these historical mm. texts and how things actually were because how things actually were is often pretty murky, in mm. fact. Um, and there are various tests, you know, which the historical Jesus people apply, like if it's a tricky comment 
um, then it's more likely to be historically true because otherwise it would have been, you know, carefully, you know, just put to one side. Mm. Um, but, uh, with the Buddha, um, yeah, my sense is that maybe the greater challenge actually is to try to think what, uh, something like reincarnation might mean to us now. Mm. Um, even if you don't go along with it in the way that is very common, mm. you know, in India. Um, yeah, so this this sense of creating a Buddha, a Buddha who is you know a bit like a modern secular thinking kind, uh, you know, fairly sorted Western secular kind of guy. Yes, uh, that made me a bit suspicious, I must say. But it did me too. I mean, I I think that the you know it came across as a kind of Buddha who is basically a secular humanist and an atheist, um, and I just don't think that's how the Buddha would have been um, um, because secular humanism and atheism as we understand them at the present just didn't exist in those days. I mean there were people who quibbled over the nature of gods and stuff and um, there were people who had ethical codes and all that but um, a kind of post-religious secular society is a a new thing in history Um, and so I do, I do think that's a kind of distortion. Um, and also I think that by going along with the atheist assumptions of our society, um, you know, he may win converts from atheists and secular humanists, and I'm sure there are many who welcome the message because it's a spiritual practice that uh, they feel open to and is helpful. And there's no doubt that the meditative practice is very helpful. Um, so... Uh, but again, I think it's it's misleading, and I think that people who think that's enough will end up feeling it's not enough, because one of the dimensions of religion is the collective dimension. You know, it's things you do with other people. All traditions have their festivals. When I lived in India, you know, the way they celebrate Durga Puja or Diwali, I mean, these great festivals, all the way Jewish people celebrate Passover or Yom Kippur or Christians, Christmas and Easter I mean, these are a very important part and the full moon festivals and the Buddha birthday festivals and the Buddhist tradition are a very important part so if people have none of that there's nothing to celebrate together there's nothing to bring children into because festivals involve children and children, uh, the young children love festivals but they don't necessarily want to sit quietly meditating when they're five years old um, so all that, I think, is, would need to be reinvented. And towards the end of his talk, in response to a question, actually, somebody said, well, you know, what about getting together? And he said, oh, well, I think the thing then to do is to have meditation groups that meet regularly to meditate together, perhaps with an introduction or something. And then somebody said, well, isn't that just reinventing religious services? And he said, well, I, I suppose it is. And... Uh, he said, the only problem is, where do we do them? Where can you find a space? It's surprisingly hard to find a space. Well, the obvious answer to that is do them in churches, because most churches are present in every community. Many of them are underused, and some of them already have um, silent prayer sessions on weekdays when people gather together and, and pray or meditate in silence together. So I did see a possible convergence here with... It seemed to me that he was deeply imbued with the kind of anti-Christian secular humanist ethos, which is just very pervasive in our culture. And it, the, 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 in his whole talk, the word Christianity 
never entered once. You know, it's been completely airbrushed out, as it has for many modern people. Yeah, I suppose um, partly in Stephen's defence, um, you know, he's not here to to respond directly himself. But I mean, he, ha- I mean, you, I know you know this, but he has he's walked the walk as well, hasn't he? So he has spent many years in Tibet. He was a Tibetan monk, I think. Um, he worked with the Dalai Lama. He then went to South Korea and joined a Zen monastery, I think, because mm. he became disillusioned actually with Tibetan religiosity. Um, he says that in one of his books. Um, he wondered what all these initiations and, and so on were really all about, reciting things hundreds of thousands of times. Um, so he has kind of walked the walk. And I suppose personally, I also feel I need to say that in a way I benefit a bit from his secular approach because I go to Gaia House, um, which is a meditation center just outside Newton Abbott. And it's sort of Buddhism light. There's figures of the Buddha around, but there aren't any pujas and ceremonies, which when I've been in Tibetan places are very hard really to get into. Um, you know, there's the language issue, obviously, but they do come from a very particular culture. And I think you've got to go through quite an initiation yourself to just sort of be able to really connect with those. So I'm glad, I'm grateful to Stephen in a way that he's pursued his secular project because it's given me a meditation center where they're really good at silence. They know how to hold sustained periods of silence over days and weeks. Um, and you, as a Christian, I can kind of go in there and not be overladen with Buddhist stuff. So I, I do appreciate it in that way. Mm. But that said, um, uh, I, I agree with you as well that, um, I mean, for example, one of the things which uh, has become quite important for me in my own practice is um, having a devotional aspect. Mm. And I think this relates to what you're saying, that um, the therapeutic side of meditation, um, you know, getting to know your own emotional household, um, uh, all the benefits of that. Um, there's another energy in us as human beings, I think, which is some we, as it were, want to uh, connect um, with others and with a wider side of life that has a much more devotional quality. Hmm. Um, you know, so in traditional Buddhist practice would be expressed in terms of making prostrations um, and, as it were, um, seeing in the Buddha not just a kind of more uh, complete version of yourself, um, but seeing something that um, exists in the cosmos as a whole, hmm. um, you know, the, the Buddha nature in the cosmos as a whole. Hmm. Um, and that's... For me, I, as it were, return to my kind of Christian side for the more devotional parts of the spirit mm. um, in the singing of hymns, in the lighting of candles, going to mm. communion service, that kind of thing. Um, the desire to worship, really, mm. which is a much more Christian word, I suppose. Um, but nonetheless, uh, that side of the human psyche and, and desire. Um, but also, I suppose, another thing which has become really important for me is a sense that I'm not just kind of doing this on my own, struggling as it were with my own enlightenment, but there's a bigger unfolding mm. in the cosmos as a whole that's leading all things to a kind of return to God. Mm. And that's very explicit in Christianity. Um, <coughs> the idea of that Christ, um, as the Logos, um, remaking the cosmos, um, and, uh, as it were, there's our particular journey, but that's caught up in a much larger journey as well. Mm. And I find that both a kind of consolation. And um, there is the consolatory factor, but also I feel it's more true too, mm. um, than just as it were meditating monads, um, getting on with the business of their own psyches, sort mm. of floating in an otherwise fairly meaningless void. Mm. No, I agree. And actually, I also agree that the fact that Stephen Batchelor and other people have created this kind of secular form of meditation is a great gift because it means that people can adopt 
either his kind of Buddhist meditation or even more secularized mindfulness meditation, um, both with or without a religious envelope. And his form, as you say, is, is perfectly compatible with Christianity. And I think that including that within an enlarged Christian practice or an enlarged personal practice that's based in the Christian tradition is is a wonderful thing that it wasn't possible until relatively recently. Um, so I think that's a great gift. Um, and so, and I also think that for Buddhism to become assimilated in the West, it has to be grounded in our traditions. Uh, and when Buddhism was adopted into Sri Lanka, it had to fit in with what the culture was there already, and, and it assimilated, and it included element, elements of the kind of Hindu tradition. And when Buddhism was assimilated into Tibet, it had to deal with the Bon religion that was there beforehand and, and the, the shamanic tradition that was there um, and the local protector deities and, and spirits. And, um, and it did that very effectively. Um, so it's very grounded in the country and the land and the festivals and so on. Yeah, I mean, I've heard Stephen make the remark that Zen Buddhism took three or four centuries to really emerge as an indigenous form of Buddhism and Buddhism's been in the West for maybe 150 years, you know, since the late 19th century. Yes. So we're in the middle of the formation of an authentically Western Buddhism. Yes. But you see, I think that many people, including me, want to have a connection with tradition, sacred places, etc., which, in England at least, are not Buddhist. Um, and so I think it's necessary to assimilate somehow into the existing traditions. Um and so I, I didn't like his message when it seemed to be so austerely individualist and, and so on, but it did seem to me that he did leave open these possibilities, especially when he started talking about people getting together in meditation groups and, and, and so on. Yeah, I don't think he... He has his own view, I think, um, and it is broadly uh, materialist. But um, he's not a kind of exclusive sort of figure. I mean, you know, people can follow their own paths, which I guess is part of the individual individualist message in itself. Yes. Um, yeah. He, he's. Uh, I mean, it's it's very interesting the link to Christianity because I think one of the things that's happened in Christianity is Christianity has, in very large part, lost touch with its own contemplative traditions. We've kind of said this before in our discussions, yes. and um, he uh, cultivating a form of. Um, meditation that isn't just clinical you know that isn't just based on the six-week kind of mindfulness course um, which um, a lot of mindfulness courses are based on that is richer than that he does look at for example things like ethics and how that really matters mm. and has been one of the traditional parts of the buddhist path mm. um, so he's expanding things in that direction as well which i think is mm. a really valuable and important thing to do mm. i wonder whether there's just one more element we might pick up though because um one of the paradoxes it seems to me in a materialist buddhism is that buddhism is nothing if not interested in consciousness you know the main work as it were takes place within the mind within the psyche and yet of course consciousness mind and psyche is one of the great enigmas if you have a materialist worldview there's basically no way of accounting for it at all various ideas have been proposed but none of them really stack up or certainly none of them have received universal acceptance 
And so I just wonder how long this kind of materialist Buddhism can really hold on to that contradiction, um, when on the one hand it conceives the world as, you know, sort of inert matter, but on the other hand its main interest is the thing called consciousness. Interesting, isn't it? I mean, quite a few prominent atheists um, are Buddhist meditators, Susan Blackmore here in Britain, and Sam Harris, one of the four new atheists in the United States, both practice forms of Buddhist meditation while remaining atheists and materialists. Um, And they somehow seem to fit it in with their worldview. I suppose by assuming the Buddhist meditation is basically triggering off some kind of response in the brain which produces subjective sensations as a result of neurotransmitter release or something of that kind. Um, But the whole tradition of Buddhist meditation is really one of going beyond the limitations of consciousness to a much more unlimited form of consciousness which doesn't really fit with its all in the brain. It suggests something wider and greater than the brain. Um, not necessarily explicitly because of this this general prohibition against speculative metaphysics. But I agree with you, it does seem to me a tension that may not be able to last much longer. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's pretty uh, basic, actually, even in non-Tibetan forms of Buddhism, to talk about the created and the uncreated aspects of consciousness. And uh, you can maybe have a reductive picture of the created aspects of consciousness, but the whole point is that um, one lets go of those to some degree, you know, the, 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 the process of detachment, in order to discover the uncreated. And the uncreated explicitly is not part of the rising and falling of the material world. Um, so I, I think that this, this is an interesting tension to see how people like Stephen and others you know, play that out. Exactly. So what's exciting about this is that actually it's not the end, it's the sort of part of a process of evolutionary change which is going on right now yeah well thank you very much indeed that's interesting to mull over thank you